Well, as we continue our study through the book of Proverbs, I want to encourage you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs chapter 30, we're going to look this morning at just a few verses of a very unusual but very helpful prayer in Proverbs 30. A few weeks ago, on a Sunday morning, someone handed me this little booklet. I don't remember exactly who it was, but I was very grateful to receive this because when I was young, I read this little book and someone had taught me this lesson. I hadn't seen it for years and kind of really had forgotten that it was out there. So I was really thankful to get this. It's called My Heart, Christ Home by Robert Munger. Some of you may be looking at this and saying, that's the size of book I'd like to read. Well, there it is right there. It's really a neat little story. It's all based out of a little prayer that Paul prayed in Ephesians 3.17. Paul is praying for the church in Ephesus, loves them deeply, has just reminded them of all of the blessings that are theirs in Christ Jesus and longs for them to not only hear it, but to receive it. It's really a prayer that, uh, that any pastor would pray as you have given the truth and said, I just long for you to receive it and to know it and be changed by it. I want you to experience everything God has for you. And he prays this in Ephesians 3.17. He says, I pray that Christ might dwell in your heart by faith. And he paints for us in that one little verse there, a little word picture of a home. And Paul wants us to see our heart like a home. And our home filled with all these different little rooms. And what Jesus wants to do is Jesus wants to come in and take ownership of every room in our heart. He wants us to be fully surrendered in every way to him. And so what this little book does, written in the first person, it just imagines if you were to give your life to Jesus Christ and you say, Jesus, okay, I'm ready to know you. And salvation is really trusting what Christ has done. And then in response to that, giving yourself fully to him. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's not only that you're believing what is right, but that belief is then manifested in your surrender to the Lord. So he just imagines what it was like for Jesus to come into the home of your heart and wanting to go into every room. And so he goes room by room. He goes into the study. The study represents our minds, what we think, what we reflect upon. And Jesus says, I want to be the Lord of your mind. He then goes into the kitchen, which symbolizes our appetites. And he says, I want to be the Lord of, of your appetites and of your desires. He goes into the living room, which represents kind of that unstructured time that we have in our life, that time where we're just resting and relaxing. He says, I, I hate to tell you, but I even want to be the Lord of that time. I want you to, to think about me in that time. Every single room, he goes into the kitchen and then study in the bedroom. He goes into the workroom. He goes into the playroom. And then right as the Lord is about to leave the house, he says to the man, he says, I smell something that doesn't smell right. The man says, well, it's nothing. Don't worry about it. And Jesus says, no, there's something. And I believe there's something rotten in that upstairs hall closet. We didn't, we didn't go in there. And the man says he gets irritated because he's kind of frustrated now with Jesus wanting to go every place. He understands that Jesus should go some places. But isn't there any place left for me to just have my own space and my own time, some things I'm going to protect and Jesus says, no, I want in that hall closet. They open the hall closet, and the reason that it stinks is because it's filled with all of this rottenness from the old life before Christ. Some things that he didn't want to let go of, some things that he was ashamed of, some things that he had never told anybody, some secrets were there. 
There were some areas of his life in which he didn't want the Lord to touch, some areas in which he didn't want to surrender, some areas in which he was afraid, and he had stuffed them all in this closet and closed the door and said, okay, Lord, you can go anywhere, but I don't want you to go in there. But Jesus wanted in there. And he wanted in there because he wanted to clean it out. He didn't want to bring more hurt and shame, but what Jesus wanted to do is he wanted to give something better. And this is the reason that Jesus wants to come into your life. This is the reason that Jesus wants to go into every area of your life because what he wants to do is he wants to clean out the junk that is there and he wants to put something better in there. He wants to put healing and and help and encouragement there. I think the reason this little booklet resonates so much and has been around for years and years is because all of us have a whole closet. We just do. Every single one of us has an upstairs hall closet in which we have just shut some things in. Some areas in which we might be filled with shame. Some areas of regret. Some areas of bitterness. Maybe some areas of resentment and anger. There could be in there some secrets that no one else knows. There could be some leftovers in that room of of things from your old life. And when you came to Christ, you dealt with a lot. But there were a couple areas you just want to hold on to and you, you just deal with them. So you just put them in that hall closet. There also could be in that room some things that maybe you just don't think God cares about. We're really good at labeling things, spiritual and non-spiritual, and so we put the spiritual label on a bunch of stuff. But there's, if we're honest, a lot of things in our life that we just don't put a spiritual label on. It's something that God doesn't care that much about, and so we just stick it in the closet. As a pastor, I have dealt with a lot of people in a lot of hall closets. I've talked to a lot of people about things that were hidden for years, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, God has begun to bring conviction and those things need to be dealt with. Maybe long-term bitterness or some sexual sin. It's amazing the way in which the Lord can heal. But one of the things I've discovered over the years of pastoring in the midst of all of the other things that tends to hide in that closet, there is one thing that tends to be in that closet for most people, but something that is surprising to us. Because it's an area that that doesn't seem to go in the same category as sexual immorality or bitterness or resentment or hidden sins. It really tends to be an area more or less that we've just forgotten about and haven't thought much about, particularly in terms of, of our relationship with the Lord. And that area that tends to be in almost every person's closet is the area of your money, the area of your finances. Some of us don't want to bring that to the Lord because we're afraid that if we, if we bring that to the Lord and we let him have a control over it, he's going to make all of us poor. We're all going to be broke. He's going to tell us to give everything away. We're going to have nothing poverty stricken for the rest of our lives. So we're just afraid. Some of us, we just don't trust the Lord at all. Like, Lord, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I want to give you a lot of things, but I don't trust you with that. I don't, I don't know if you're going to tell me what is good and right, and we just don't trust him. Some of us, Don't let the Lord into that area because of pride. I've worked hard for my money. I'm a self-made person. And I simply don't want anybody telling me what to do with my money. Particularly the Lord and even more so a pastor. But I think a lot of people have that area of their life in that closet room. Because we just don't tend to think God has much to say about it. Like we just want to put an unspiritual label on it and say, I want the Lord to be involved in so many areas of my life, but I just want to keep him out of that life. He just doesn't have much to say about that. And the reason I know that we tend to not want to talk about this issue and not want to bring the Lord into this issue is because the moment I said it, I felt that I sucked the life out of this service. You feel it too. There's already tension and nervousness because we're talking about money. It is an area that we really don't want the Lord to be that involved with. 
but it is a, an area in which the Lord has a ton to say. The Lord says so much to us about our money. And the great thing about listening to what the Lord says about our money is that we know that he's not saying it because he needs money. There's a purity in his heart. God is not talking to us about money because he needs your offering. He doesn't need anything from you. Everything you have, you receive from him. And so he's not a prosperity preacher that's trying to get you to give because of things he wants to buy and he can't afford until the people of Prince Avenue start to get it. God needs nothing from you. And so why would he talk so much about money and so much about giving? The answer is because he loves you. And he cares about your heart. And he cares about your affections. And he cares about your desires. And he cares about your eternity. And he cares about the fact that he longs for you to make it faithful all the way until the end. And the God who knows you best. And the God who has watched generations and generations of people deal with money and fail in the area of money has said, I want to instruct you in this way. Now, what's amazing to me is there is almost no area of our life worse than money. Can we just talk about that? Like it causes the most stress. It has torn apart more marriages. It has destroyed more families. It has hurt more children's relationship with parents and parents with children. It is an area for most of us that is filled with constant worry and pain and anxiety and struggle. And so if that's true, why would we not want the wisdom of God? Isn't that the most amazing thing? That here is the area which causes us the most trouble, which is the most difficult area in our lives, and yet it is also the area in which we don't care what God has to say. Wouldn't we want the wisdom of a good and a gracious and a perfectly wise God to instruct us in how to deal with our money to maybe save us from a little bit of the pain and struggle that money brings? That's exactly what God has done. God's word on money is an incredibly gracious gift to us. And we got to receive it that way. And although you could go all throughout the Bible to hear words about money, there may be no place that gives us more instruction than the book of Proverbs. And I know if I'm going to faithfully preach the book of Proverbs and we're going to look at these topics that are primary in Proverbs, I have to talk about money. And so I'm going to, and here's the good news, not just for one week, but for two. <laughs> I'm looking around who's here. Don't miss next week. I'm going to know why you skipped it. Here's the thing. The reason I want to spend two weeks is because there's two sides of this issue. And maybe to your surprise, God deals with both. There is, on one hand, the spiritual side of the issue, which we're going to deal with this morning. On the other hand, the practical side. Next week, I'm going to talk about what the book of Proverbs says practically about money. Things like the way in which God provides is through work. I'm going to talk about planning. I'm going to talk about saving. I'm going to talk about giving. There is incredible practical dis uh, uh, discussion in the book of Proverbs or really about everything you need to know to manage your money and to use it wisely. So we'll do that next week. But this week... I want to talk about the spiritual side of money. And I want to do so from a very strange and unusual prayer, unlike maybe any prayer that you have ever prayed from Proverbs 30, a prayer of Agur. There's only two chapters in the book of Proverbs not written by Solomon, chapter 30 and 31. And this prayer is a prayer of Agur. It's in Proverbs 30, 7 through 9. Listen to what it says. Two things I ask of you, Agur says to the Lord. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. 
Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Verse 9, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. That is a really odd prayer. I, I doubt that any of us have prayed a prayer like that one. Lord, I, I just want to be clear with you. I want to make sure that you don't make me rich. Whatever it is, Lord, I just don't want too much money. Give me too much of a lot of things, but withhold the money. We never pray that prayer. Like, what a, what a strange thing to pray. The truth is, it's a really challenging prayer. Because it's not something we would normally pray. When we think about money, we don't tend to think about it in these terms. And so what is revealed to us is something that, that challenges our thoughts about money. And challenges our desires and challenges what we value. And it's a challenge that we need. Like church, I, I know that there's something difficult about talking about this issue. But you need to be challenged in the area of your money. I need to be challenged in the area of my money. And so that's exactly the challenge we receive from this prayer of Agur. First of all, he challenges our perspective. He challenges our perspective of money. He kind of challenges the way we view money. So this is really important because all of us have a certain view of money. But Agur shows us a different view of money, maybe different from the one that we have. He challenges our perspective. You see, because the way he sees it is different than we often see it. First of all, he shows us that he sees it as a spiritual issue. Agur sees money as a spiritual issue, not just a practical issue. So how do you know that? Well, because he prayed about it. Like, I think the most amazing thing of this text is simply the fact that he prayed about his money. When's the last time you just took your money to the Lord and said, Lord, I, I want to pray about this. I want you to give me direction. I want you to give me instruction. God, this doesn't belong to me. It belongs to you. So I'm going to bring this to you in prayer. We don't do that very often. Now, I would say that probably all of us have prayed some prayers about money. Uh, I can think of a prayer I've prayed about money, and maybe you've prayed it too, you know, late at night, kind of stressed and worried about everything. You might say something like, Lord, I, I, don't, I don't know if you still do this anymore. I know you've done it in the past. But if you could still do it, it'd be great. I'd love for you to do it for me. Do you, uh, Lord, do you, do you remember that story of the loaves and the fish? <laughs> you know, they just brought to you a little bit of stuff. And at the end, there was 12 baskets full. God, I don't know, but if you could do that with my bank account, I would greatly appreciate it. I'm bringing you some loaves and fish. Lord, would you, would you take it and make it into something great? Uh, I think we've prayed prayers of desperation when it came to money. But this is not a prayer of desperation at all. Like it's a prayer of desire and surrender. It's a prayer of love and affection. It feels very different than a normal prayer that we would pray. It's really a prayer of surrender. To put it in terms that we talked about a moment ago, it's really a prayer of opening the door. Lord, I'm taking this area of my life. I'm going to open wide the door and I'm going to invite you in. I need you to oversee this issue. It is so difficult for me and brings so much stress and heartache. Uh, an issue that I know that could lead me astray. So Lord, I'm going to invite you in because it's a spiritual issue. Now listen, it's a spiritual issue whether you want it to be or not. Whether you acknowledge it or not, your money is having an effect upon your spiritual life. Jesus settled that issue in Matthew 6. When Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. At that moment, Jesus made it clear that the condition of your heart will be greatly determined by the way in which you deal with your money. Do we realize what an unbelievable statement that is? 
The way in which you spend your money, feel about your money, think about your money, deal with your money is directly affecting the condition of your heart. And God cares about your heart. And everything is flowing out of your heart. Out of your heart is flowing all of the issues of life. And so if everything in your heart is affected by the way in which you view and spend money, and everything is flowing out of your heart, couldn't we acknowledge that there may be nothing bigger in our life than seeing money in a way that is right? It's not just a room in the house. It can be the whole house. It's a spiritual issue from beginning to end. And so we want to bring God into it. Hager sees that. But he also sees not only is it a spiritual issue, it's a stewardship issue. You say, where do you see that? Well, I see it in two words in verse 8. He says, give and feed. You see that? Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Well, in those two words, give and feed, he is acknowledging that everything he receives comes from the Lord. He is acknowledging that every good and perfect gift comes from God. He is acknowledging that everything I receive, I receive from God. He is acknowledging that he really is not the owner of everything and he cannot accomplish everything on his own, but he must be receiving from the Lord. Do you see the humility in that? Like how many times do we pray that kind of prayer? God, I know that everything belongs to you and I don't really have a right to anything. And so I'm asking from you to give me and, and to feed me with that which I need. And so right there, he's establishing stewardship. He's establishing ownership. Who owns your money? Who's in charge of your bank account? Who owns your savings, your checking, and your retirement? And the answer is the Lord owns it all. None of it really belongs to you. You are a steward of that which is ultimately God's. We could give a thousand verses for that, but 1 Chronicles 29, 11 through 12 is really helpful. 1 Chronicles 29 says this, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in heaven and earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. To which we say yes and amen and yes. The kingdom, the authority, the rule, the power. But then it says this, both riches and honor come from you. And you rule over all. Which that means no matter how much you have, it's not ultimately yours. However much you have, it obviously all belongs to the Lord. You could look at that parable of the, the talents in Matthew 25. I won't read that or go to that story. But it tells about a master who takes some talents and he gives them to individuals, three individuals, one to uh, five and then two and then one. And he says, I'm going away and I'm expecting you to use these talents for good. And you know that phrase that we, we hear all the time, well done, good and faithful servant. It comes from that parable. Because the master comes back and, and two of the men had used the talents to produce something good. One had just saved it and protected it because he was afraid he was going to lose it. And he was the one that was cursed. But the two that, that took their talents and used them for good and were wise with them, they heard the words, well done, good and faithful servant. So it isn't interesting that those words that all of us would like to hear when we stand before God someday are words that are used in the context of what God has entrusted to you. That includes your family, that includes your talents, that includes your gifting, but that also includes your money. The well done, good and faithful servant is the one who has 
understood that everything he has is owned by the Lord and he's simply called and entrusted with some of it to use for good purposes. Have you ever had a, a company credit card? Maybe a better illustration for this generation. Have you ever had a parent's credit card? <laughs> Something feels different when you're using your credit card as opposed to someone else's credit card. When it's your credit card, you're the one that's going to open the bill and you're the one responsible for it. But when you have a company credit card, you feel a little different. You, you know that someone else is going to see the bill. And you know that it's not your money. And you walk and spend with a little bit more care. You're just more careful with how you spend it because it's not yours. That's exactly the way the Lord wants us to feel about our money. He wants us to feel careful about the way we spend our money. He wants us to be thoughtful. Why? Because it's not ours. It's his. And we're given account for the way that we spend it. And the good and faithful servant is a comment that is given to the one who has been a good steward of what God has entrusted to them. And what's so amazing to me is how when I will talk to you every once in a while about a biblical conviction I have that I believe in first fruits tithing. What I mean by that is I believe that we are to take the first 10% of everything that God gives to us and we give it back to the work of the Lord. I believe that without question. What's amazing to me is how many people when I talk about that bow up and say, listen, I'm under grace, not under the law. Don't tell me I need to give 10%. When the Lord has somehow left you with 90% and none of it's yours. Isn't that amazing how immediately we would get irritated that we would be asked by the Lord to give 10% of the 100% he has given to us. It is the most ridiculous thing in the world that any of us would respond negatively at the thought of God wanting us to give. And my conviction is from 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 that 10% is the place that we start and we grow in the grace of giving year after year. And the reason we would react negatively towards that is because we do not understand the stewardship issue that none of that money belongs to you. It's a spiritual issue, a stewardship issue, but he also shows in this passage, he sees money as a dangerous issue. There is something really wise and healthy in this prayer. There's a really good and wise and healthy fear of money, like a legitimate fear of money, a fear that I would say most of us don't have. Look what he says, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. So why in the world would anyone pray this? Why would anyone say, Lord, don't make me rich and don't make me poor. I just want to be right in that middle class in between. That's the goal right there. Just middle class the rest of my life. Nobody prays that. But he prays it because of verse 9. Because he says, I don't want to be full and deny you. I don't want to say who is the Lord. And I also don't want to be poor and, and steal and, and profane the name of God. What he realizes is this, there is a danger inherent with money. Money's not a bad thing, but it does come with a certain danger. And I think what Agur is saying here is that he has watched in his wisdom so many people who have lost their faith in the Lord because of money. Listen to what it says in Proverbs 18, 11. It says, Riches, a rich man's wealth is his strong city. What does that mean? Well, when a man gets wealthy, he kind of feels secure and safe. He has built this strong city. And it says it's like a high wall in his own imagination. 
Meaning that he has built this wall around him. He has built this sense of security. I'm good. I've got what I need. But that security is only in his imagination. It is not real. Listen to this. Matthew 19, 23. Truly, I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Do we realize that? With all of us who want to be rich, it is hard for a rich man. You say, why? Well, it's because that wealth has such an ability to steal away our heart and our time and our affection. And so the things that used to matter to us and the things that you used to pray about and the places we used to go and the things we used to do for the Lord, all of a sudden those things are no longer a priority. Why? Because we just don't need God that much anymore. Listen to this one, 1 Timothy 6.10. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, I want you to listen to this, and some by longing for it, some by longing for money, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So we were honest, like the longing in our heart would be for more, almost all of us, even if you have a lot, there's just always a little bit more. But it says those who have longed for more have not only walked away from the faith, but they have brought more grief in their life. Money is not evil. It's good and it's necessary, but it can be dangerous. The most humbling verse for that for me is in Mark chapter 4 when you see the parable of the soils. The, the sower goes out and sows seeds and those seeds represent the gospel and the soil, those who receive the gospel. And it says there is one of the soils that seems to receive the gospel and they spring up and they bear fruit, meaning they're active, they're involved, they make a decision for Christ. It seems like everything is going well, but it says that at the end, they fall away from the faith. They're not ultimately believers. And one of the reasons why is this, listen, the deceitfulness of riches. There are some who have lost their commitment to Jesus Christ that that will lose their hold upon Jesus Christ. Why? Because of the deceitfulness of riches. And Agur knows this. He knows that it is possible for finances to be what ruins you, what steals your affection for Jesus Christ. And so he says, I don't want riches. He also says, I don't want poverty. I don't want to be tempted to steal or borrow or cheat or profane the name of God. I don't want to be angry or resentful. But the challenge to our perspective is this. Challenge is, well, how do I view money? The way we need to view it is it's a spiritual issue. It's a stewardship issue. And it is a bit of a a dangerous issue. So we would be very humble and thoughtful about it. The next challenge I feel in this prayer is a challenge to our pursuits. Our challenge to our pursuits. What am I really living for? Like, what is it that's really the driving motivation of my life? Because the prayer is really not about money. The prayer is about a pursuit of God. Did you notice that? Like the real prayer is, God, I want to make sure that money does not diminish my pursuit of you. Money's not the pursuit. Money is not the goal. Godliness is the goal. And right there, we're really challenged with the way we think about money because many of us are driven by pursuit of money. We just want money. We've lost families. We've lost relatives. We've lost friends. We've lost faithfulness to church. Why? Because of money and the pursuit of money. But the challenge this has for us is is the pursuit is not a pursuit of money, but a pursuit ultimately of godliness. I want to make sure that money does not affect my godliness is what he's saying. You see those two pursuits in verse 9. Look at that. There's the pursuit, first of all, of personal faithfulness and then the pursuit of a public testimony. Personal faithfulness. Lord, I don't want to deny you. Like, Lord, I want to walk with you. Like, I want my heart to be right. I want my affections to be right. I want to trust you. 
And so when we receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, what we do is we trust Jesus and his death as the payment for our sins. And we say, Lord, I believe in you. I'm calling upon your name. But what comes alongside of that and proof of that belief is that we then surrender our life to Jesus. And we say, Lord, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust you and I'm going to follow you. What Agar is saying is, Lord, I, I want to follow you and trust you. That's the, that's the desire of my heart. And I just want to make sure that no love for money or desire for money holding on to these things will hinder my faithfulness to you. I don't want to lose sight of you. I want to always need you. I don't want to love money. I want to love you. And so God, whatever it is you think you need to protect me from that, Lord, I, I want to be faithful. But I love that he also says he wants to be a testimony because he knows that his money can hinder his testimony. Have you ever known anyone who's lost their testimony because of money? <laughs> You ever known anybody that's lost their testimony because of their view of money, because of their pursuit of money? So here's what he says at verse nine. He goes, I don't want to deny you and say, who's the Lord? That's personal faithfulness. I also don't want to be poor and steal and profane the name of God. Profaning the name of God is this Old Testament language, particularly in the book of Ezekiel, that talks about when the people of God fail to live right with God, they profane God's name to those who are watching. In other words, they diminish the name and the glory and the holiness of God because of their life. They claim the name of God, I'm a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, but their life makes that look not true. And so what he says is this, I don't want to live in such a way where money is affecting me to not represent Christ well. I wanna be a testimony to the Lord and because I want to be a testimony to the Lord, I want to make sure that, that money is not affecting that. What you realize is this is not really a prayer for provision. It's a prayer for protection. God, protect my heart. You know my heart. You know what I need. God, please protect me and my love for you and my testimony to others. It's exactly why we sang a minute ago, riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance now and always, thou and thou only, first in my heart, O King of glory, my treasure Thou art. But the last challenge I want to give you from this is not only the challenge of our perspective, that it's a spiritual issue, a challenge of our pursuits that I want to live for the Lord, but it's a challenge to our desires. Not just what we go after, but what we really want. Like, what do you really want most from life? What's the goal? And there's the strangest little phrase in verse eight. I want you to see this. It's really incredible. It says, feed me with the food that is needful for me. Circle that word needful. That word needful is a word that is often translated portion. It means exactly the amount that I need. Now, when I think of the word portion, this is just because it's fresh on my mind. I, I think about a picture I received uh, yesterday afternoon. Uh, my son, Josiah, uh, was able to spend an afternoon with his favorite uncle, Scott. Uh, Scott has a t-shirt that he wears sometimes to kids' soccer games that says, Funkle, because he's the fun uncle. Everybody needs a fun uncle, right? And uh, the picture I got was Josiah sitting in a movie theater, and he had like a 42-ounce blue Slurpee in the cup holder. <laughs> he had a massive bowl of popcorn. And then sitting on the hand rest, I can show this to you afterwards, I'm not making this up was a bag of Skittles on top of a bag of Twizzlers right behind a bag of M&Ms. This is why you have a fun uncle, right? The text I got was the picture and only two words, all organic. That was the, that was the text I got. 
Now, the reason you need an uncle is because you need times in your life when you can just make yourself sick on candy, right? The reason you need a parent is because kids don't understand portion control. Right, a, a kid at Halloween, they don't understand portion control, and they will literally eat until they're sick. And so you have to have a parent that comes in at some point and says, okay, that's enough. I know how much you need, and I know how much is going to make you sick. And so I'm going to limit your portion because I love you, and I don't want you to throw up. Not only because I don't want you to be sick, but I don't want to clean up the mess. Here's what, here's what this prayer is. Listen, listen to the amazing wisdom, the surprising wisdom of this. Here's what Agar is saying. Lord, you're the one that knows portion control. God, I don't know. If you gave me millions and millions of dollars, I would love it and I would spend it, I would spend it, I would spend it. Like I would love more money and more money and more money and more money. But God, I don't know the portion that I need. So what I'm saying is, God, give me the portion that you think I need to do what you've called me to do. I'm trusting you with the portion. What an unbelievable prayer. I've never thought of that until I read this passage. Let me just say an encouraging word to some of you. Some of you are working hard. You're being obedient to the Lord. You're giving faithfully, meaning that the Lord is the Lord of your finances. You really are off surrendered. You faithfully, every week, you're giving to the Lord, and you don't feel like you have enough. Can I just say that when you're walking with the Lord in the wisdom of his way of finances, and you just don't have as much as you think you'd like to have, can I just encourage you to trust the God who knows your portion? He knows, he knows your portion. He knows exactly how much you need. And can I just say to those of you who do not have the Lord in the middle of your finances, you should be scared to death. That somehow by your lack of giving and by your lack of inviting the Lord in, you should be terrified of what this can do to your heart if you don't have the Lord right in the middle of this. I cannot imagine, I want to say this to you, I cannot imagine a more terrifying feeling than walking way, day by day in the midst of my finances and all the decisions I have to make if I knew I was not giving faithfully to the Lord. I cannot imagine the anxiety and fear I would feel as if I had not trusted the Lord with my finances. Therefore, it all depends on me. One of the greatest hopes I have of knowing that Andrew and I are going to have everything we ever need at every moment in life is because we give and give and give. So we just walk with this confidence that every time we need it, God is going to give us our portion at the right time. You see, that's the desire. Like the desire is, Lord, I, I want your portion. I, I want to surrender my life and everything I have for you. I want exactly what you know I need because you only need. You're the only one that knows. You might remember that little phrase for advertising American Express. It says membership has its privileges. And it does. And depending on how much money you have determines how many privileges you get. So you can start with a green card with a few privileges, and then you can get the gold card. And if you have a little money, you can get that platinum card. And if you're willing to spend a minimum of $250,000 a year, you can get the invitation-only black card. I'm not saying that because I know it. I saw it once and looked it up. And so it's, it's real. It exists. It exists. And, and can we just be honest? It's true. Membership has its privileges. And can we just also be honest? Money has its privileges. Like there are things money cannot buy. There's also a lot of things money can buy. Good stuff, like stuff that we want. And I just think we have to be honest about, like th there is something good about money. And the book of Proverbs talks about the way in which God blesses us. And every person in this room has more than enough. Every person in this room has more than you deserve. We are incredibly, overwhelmingly blessed. 
All of us have more than we need, and we all have more than we deserve. So the Bible talks about those good gifts that God has given us. But I want you to know that in the midst of all the privileges that come with money, the Proverbs wants to know there are so many things in life better than money. Do you know what Proverbs says? Proverbs says, first of all, that that wisdom is better than money. It would be better to have the wisdom of God than, than riches. The fear of God, a right relationship with God is better than money. Listen, a good name is better than money. So if you have to sacrifice your name to get money, you've lost everything. It says knowledge of God is better than money. Righteousness is better than money. Honesty is better than money. Integrity is better than money. It is better to keep your integrity and lose money. Love is better than money. And peace is better than money. That last one is given in the context of a verse that says this, it is better to live in a quiet house with little than a contentious house with much. What it means is this, if you had to be poor but get along with your spouse, that'd be better than having a lot of money and always arguing about it. Peace is better than money. That's what the Lord wants us to say is, is, Lord, I, I'm trusting you in this, and I, I want to have a healthy fear of this. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world but to lose his soul? What does it matter if you get everything in life but you've lost what matters most? Friends, family, relationship, and faithfulness to the Lord. And so our response to this, this passage is simply the response of Agur. We pray. <laughs> we just say, Lord, I'm going to start by, by surrendering to you. So here's this area of my life. I haven't really opened it up. Maybe you have a little, maybe you have it a lot. And if you're honest, you're really not asking the Lord what to do with your money. There's a lot of money that you're not asking the Lord what to do with. And it may terrify you to open that door. But our prayer this morning must be, Lord, I'm surrendering this to you. I'm opening the door. It's all yours. But the next prayer must be one of trust. Lord, I'm opening this door because I trust you. God is good and he loves you and he's kind and he is gracious. He doesn't want to harm you. He wants what's best for you. I cannot stand when somebody says a little phrase like, well, don't ever pray for humility because you never know what God will do. Pray for humility. God wants you to have humility. What God will do is better than what he would have done if you didn't pray. Pray for it all. Why would you not want God's best? Pray about your money because you trust the heart of God who has so much good for you. You surrender it and you pray because you trust the heart of a good God who says there is nothing, nothing, nothing better than what he has for you. Let's bow our heads this morning.